0: Section 10 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. First Decade, Chapter 3, The States of Europe and etc. in the 14th century, Part 3. The question of the establishment of staples will occur again. It is now sufficient to observe— that Edward was probably not altogether ignorant of the injurious effects of such an institution upon trade, for he at first strongly objected to the proposal, but afterwards, yielding to the necessity of strengthening his position, he consented to the establishment of three staples, Brussels, Mechlin, and Louvain, in the dominions of the Duke of Brabant, It will shortly be seen, however, that he had to pay a still heavier price for the alliance of this shifty potentate. The English king could rely on the cooperation of his three brothers in law, the Counts of Hainaut, of Hulders, and the Margrave of Jülich, who were already engaged in negotiating alliances for him. And he now sent abroad his friend Lord Montacute, recently created Earl of Salisbury, and others on a kind of roving commission to treat with any foreign powers for the export of wool. Among their suite were many young knights' bachelors, who had each bandaged up one eye under a vow to their fair ladies at home that they would use one eye only till they had done some deed of chivalry in France. In the autumn of the same year, Edward entered into an alliance with the emperor to furnish him with two thousand men-at-arms for whose service he was to pay three thousand gold florins to fight against Philip, calling himself King of France. Many of these steps had been taken before Edward's reluctant abandonment of his Scotch campaign, but directly in 1337, after returning to England, he set about his final preparations for war with characteristic arbitrariness and impetuosity. His first care was to complete his arrangements for the defense of his own dominions. He forbade anyone to leave the country without his permission, or to disembark in England before he had been searched for treasonable correspondence from abroad. He appointed Lord Salisbury the first English admiral of the fleet, and made him captain of all the ports on the Thames and south coasts. The navy of that day comprised a few ships belonging to the king himself, For we read in the royal accounts of his paying for new anchors for the Christopher and the Cog Edward, and for eighty oaks to be sent to Kingsden on Hull for building ships. The sink ports were obliged to provide a certain number of cruisers, but the bulk of the ships of war were really merchant vessels impressed for the purpose, a definite contingent of which each seaport was called upon to supply. This system, applied to a commercial country like England, was productive of great inconvenience, and early in this reign and more loudly toward its close, when the monarchy had grown weaker and the parliament stronger, the people remonstrated against that arbitrary imposition of ships' levies and ships' taxes, which three centuries later stirred up a rebellion and overthrew the monarchy. To meet the enormous expenses of his intended expedition the king had recourse to those tallages and forced loans which afterwards became so frequent in the course of this costly reign from the first the war was popular edward was able to say with truth that the commons urged him to push his claim to the french crown and the nobles assented the country could afford to be generous for it was growing rich and parliament had backed up its approval by granting him permission to purchase 20000 sacks of wool no less than half the annual produce of the kingdom a roundabout form of subsidy which seems to have recommended itself to the taxmakers and taxpayers of those days in spite of its wasteful and mischievous effects by looking a little less like arbitrary confiscation than a direct transfer of a tenth or fifteenth of the property of individuals to the royal exchequer The sack of wool contained 364 pounds, a measure long since abandoned in favor of the pack, which, containing 240 pounds, adapts itself readily to calculations of the penny against the pound Averdupoise. This sack of English wool was worth 20 pounds in the markets of Brabant, where the king intended to dispose of it, but the producer in England had to sell it for three pounds. As the king enjoyed the right of preemption and could prevent any wool from being bought or sold till he had secured his twenty thousand sacks, and as he could impress ships to convey the wool across the channel, his gains ought to have been enormous. But being, of course, unable to go into the market himself, he employed ninety-six merchants as his agents, who were to receive one-half of the profits of the whole transaction. And to advance him a sum of two hundred thousand pounds on the security of the customs throughout the kingdom. The amount which he realized by this very bad bargain was altogether inadequate to meet his needs, and with a view to a further subsidy, he sent a circular to the sheriffs of the counties, directing them to gather together the clergy, barons, knights, and citizens at certain towns to hear the king's intentions. To the archbishops and bishops he wrote, stating that, having tried pacific measures in vain, he was compelled to go to war with France, and ordering them to call the clergy together, to let him know quickly how much they would give in alleviation of his expenses, and to publish and expound his requirements in every church, so that our faithful people may grant us liberally a subsidy and pray for us. He also directed that all the priories alien belonging to the king of France should be confiscated, and their value paid into the treasury. But though his preparations were thus forward, and his plans apparently ripening for execution, Edward, with that singular duplicity or vacillation which characterized his proceedings, for policy they cannot be called, sent ambassadors to Philip, with full powers to settle all causes of quarrel between them. At the same time, he wrote to the Duke of Brabant and the Count of Hainaut, styling himself King of France, Lord of Ireland, and Duke of Aquitaine, appointing them his vicars general in France, and charging them to let all people know that France of right belonged to him. He renewed negotiations with the burgomasters of the revolted cities in Flanders and at the same time with their count, whom they had expelled, proposing a marriage of his daughter with the count's son, while he offered the hand of the very same princess to the son of the Duke of Austria, the dynastic foe of the Emperor Louis, with whom he had entered into alliance only a month before. Again the empire, as will presently be shown, lay under the Pope's interdict, and this alliance of Edwards with Louis was made in open disregard of the Pope's authority and express wishes. Yet within a fortnight after its formation, Edward, who was determined to stand well with all parties, agreed to receive two cardinals from Avignon to treat for peace, and allowed himself to be induced by their exhortations to postpone for a time the invasion of France." The first blow struck by England was in Flemish waters, and not against the King of France, but against the Count of Flanders. That prince, during the earlier negotiations of Edward with his revolted subjects, had got into his power the grandfather of van Artevelde, and caused him to be put to death. This act was intended to strike terror into the popular party. But its only effect was to determine the Flemings to throw themselves into the arms of England. A collision occurred between van Artevelde and the troops of Count Louis, and the latter fled to Cadson, an island at the mouth of the Scheldt, where he placed a garrison under the command of his brother to intercept the return of the English ambassadors. Edward sent Sir Walter Manny with a fleet to dislodge the garrison and he, landing under cover of the English archery, routed the Count's soldiers and took his brother prisoner. The terms finally made with the party of Van Artevelde would seem to show that Edward was more anxious to secure their lucrative custom than their military cooperation in the war. It was agreed that the neutrality of Flanders should be strictly observed. Those parts of the country which held of France were not to be attacked— nor was an English fleet to remain in any Flemish harbor over more than one tide, unless compelled by manifest and notorious tempest. The Flemings were meanwhile to have the right of trading freely at all the ports of England. End of section 10.